Jay Dyer has a YouTube channel, and that's in the description box below this video. He's done an eclectic range of subjects, and if you've watched that movie Eyes Wide Shut, he's done a brilliant analysis of that, which I've watched in the last week. He has also got a book out, which is very highly rated here in the UK. That's doing well, and the links to his channel and book are in the description box below the video. So if you want to go down and check his stuff out, it's right there. Thank you for coming on, Jay. Just want Thank to tell, you, tell people what the name of your book is and, and what you're about. Thank you, Sean. Yeah, uh, the book is called Esoteric Hollywood, Sex Cults and Symbols in Film. Um, it's about that. It's about the crazy stuff that goes on in Hollywood, but not just a scandal book. It's like a way to look at films in a different light. Uh, so I did uh, basically Roger Ebert style analyses, but I always say it's like Roger Ebert on the acid. So it's like really, really weird, deep analyses of movies that you don't usually hear. Uh, and then I did a sequel where I changed it up a little bit because in the first one, I only covered certain directors in their films. And then the second one, what I did was move on to discuss big themes. So I cover the mafia. I cover uh, their relationship to Hollywood. I cover uh, different cults that I didn't touch on in the first book. And then I expand into other themes like how does Hollywood portray MKUltra, what's true, what's false, uh, sex cults, that kind of stuff. So that's what I do is I cover that. But I also, as you said, talk about a lot of other, a lot of other topics relating to geopolitics to philosophy i do big debates with atheists this kind of stuff so that's what i'm into okay great we're going to stay away from the thing that's going around the world right now but we're going to focus on the subject matter in your book and i'd like to start with eyes wide shut because you said in one of your videos that a lot of people are going to watch this and he's you know he knows a lot of people are going to watch this kubrick and they're still their eyes are going to remain shut but now it is relevant more than ever before and why do you believe it is more relevant than ever before? Well, I had read some texts back before all the Epstein, this kind of stuff was in the news. I read a lot of books that dealt with how blackmail goes down uh, at a big global scale with these kind of operations. And so I kind of had a sense that this was real. There were some books that had come out, you know, years ago, like the Franklin cover up, that kind of stuff, which was very similar to the things that Epstein I was involved in. So I knew that that was real. And then I, I took my unique way to look at film two eyes wide shut. And I noticed that, Hey, Kubrick is like really telling us something. There's more going on than just this story of a couple having marital problems and not wanting to sleep together. There's a lot of symbolism encoded in there. And when I looked at the other uh, Kubrick films, I noticed there were themes of people underage, this kind of stuff going on uh, with them. And it was just evident to me that not only The Shining, not only Barry Lyndon, but uh, Eyes Watch Out had a lot of meaning and symbolism packed into it. So I spent a lot of time watching and rewatching it, watching it, and really trying to decode what he was getting at. And I, I think I cracked the nut pretty, pretty well there because Kubrick was telling us the way the world works a long time ago. And he was putting it out. And the reason I said, the reason I think he says, it's eyes wide shut is that he knows that most people are not going to wake up to this. Even if you show it to them, even if you take the arts and you make the arts a way to expose things, people are still going to stay within their program box most of the time. So I've got a lot of young people on my channel and many of them I imagine are not even familiar with eyes wide shut. Could you just perhaps give a abbreviated plot summary and maybe tie it in also to the relevancy of the present day? So basically, yeah, 98, I think, uh, it was around 98 that it came out. And it's a, uh, it details the life of an upper middle class doctor, uh, uh, Bill Harford. And he and his wife are having issues with their relationship. They've been together for a while. They have a little daughter. Uh, they have everything seemingly, and, and they think of themselves kind of at the top of the totem pole. At least that's my take on the character of Bill Harford, played by Tom Cruise. Uh, we should also mention, too, at the same time that this came out, in the real world, there was marital tabloid issues between Tom Cruise uh, and Nicole Kidman. And I actually think that was on purpose in the sense that Kubrick wanted uh, to show this sort of blurry line between reality and fiction that's part of the theme for this because there's a surrealist component here so anyway 
long story short, is that he, Bill Harford, thinks he's at the top of the totem pole. He's got everything. They get invited to this party. It's their yearly elite New York party. And both the wife and Tom Cruise are propositioned by other people to sleep outside the marriage. Um, things don't exactly go as planned, per se. Uh, and this kind of sends Tom Cruise down a rabbit hole where he's on this like journey of trying to figure out all these clues that start coming his way. He gets invited to this uh, elite after party, <laughs> to use the R. Kelly terminology, after that party uh, that night. And this is a whole other kind of party. So this is where he's sort of faced with the realization that, well, I'm not actually at the top of the totem pole. There's a whole other class level of people that are way beyond me in terms of wealth and in terms of power. And we start to notice that that group it's essentially a kind of a secret society slash sex cult they also have all of the capabilities at their disposal of an intelligence agency they can have tom cruise followed all around town the bill harford character they can have him try they know everything he's done he's tracked he's traced they can even create fake news stories about the uh beauty queen right uh so they can just do whatever they want and he, he's sort of faced with this revelation uh that he doesn't know what to do uh, and he's he's been wrong this whole time. He never even understood that this is how the world works. But that's what I think the movie's about. And was there a challenge presented to him? There's a beauty queen, is it, that overdoses? Mm -hmm. And what was the relevancy of that? Well, I think what we're supposed to think is that um, two, two possibilities there. So what kicks all this off is when he's at Ziegler's party at the beginning, the first party, the Christmas party. And she overdoses, and this, he kind of helps her out because he goes to Ziegler. The doctor says, hey, can you come save this girl? She's up here. or uh, uh, No, he's the doctor, and, he's, and, and Ziegler brings him up and says, can you save this girl? And he says, she's okay. And then we find out that she's the one when he's at this party and everybody's wearing the Venetian masks. Uh, that's the girl who saves him because we find out that she wanted out of this, right? She, she was tired of this lifestyle, tired of this cult, which seems to have a bunch of supermodels. It's like a circle of supermodels and all the richest people in New York. Uh, she wants out of it, and so she redeems him. Right? She's willing to, to die. And the significance of the newspaper story is that when he sees it, uh, he knows why she's dead. But they've spun it that, well, she just overdosed. But actually, she had redeemed him by getting him out of this uh, the, the situation where he could have been killed. Do you think Kubrick was hip to what Epstein was doing in New York? It's entirely plausible. I mean, I did an interview with a friend of mine who's an, an intelligence analyst, analyst for, for uh, back during the Cold War, and he did a whole lot of work translating uh, manuscripts related to uh, Robert Maxwell, and Maxwell is the father of Ghislaine, so... The irony is that Maxwell, as this Cold War super spy who was playing both sides of East and West, he actually was doing the same types of operations <laughs> before Epstein. So this has a long track record, and that would mean it's very plausible that, uh, you know, Kubrick being in all those the same elite circles, running around with all those kind of people, he would have seen all this. So it's very plausible. Because the way you described it, though, with the supermodels, you got Wexner and the Victoria's Secrets models, you got Jean-Luc Grenell and his modeling agency. So the parallels are just massive, aren't they, then with the New York elite? Absolutely. And if you notice, the, the Hierophant, the sort of ritual character with his uh, staff and sitting in that throne with all the babes around him, he actually has a British accent, if you notice that. Mm. Now, I'm not saying that means it's Epstein. I'm just saying that Kubrick, I think, intentionally <laughs> gives this guy a British accent because he's, he's suggesting that you know there's something more going on here like the, the quote, nobility of Europe. British elites, uh, that these are the kind of people who might be uh, in these circles. In fact, the Lily Sobieski character, when she's in the costume shop, there's a key thing that you have to really, really pay attention to here. She whispers to Bill Harford that when you go to the thing, you'll need a, an ermine cloak. That's the cloak of nobility, right? That's not what commoners wear. And how does this underage girl know all this like we get the impression she's been the, to, to the event and that keys us into the fact that at every stage tom cruise is being led down this 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 trail and we see the trouble prince andrew's in right now and was the name windsor dropped into 
It is. This, this movie, what was the context? One of the, one of the two girls who propositions Tom Cruise, her, her name happens to be Nuala Windsor. Yes. <laughs> exactly. He's telling it all right there, isn't he? So, okay, so in terms of symbolism then, in this movie specifically, um, Masonic, or what, what was the symbolism used? Um, could there could be elements of Masonic symbolism? Um, I definitely think there's a Crowleyan component. So I think there's a uh, if you don't know Aleister Crowley, the, the famous uh, Satanist, the Beast, so-called of the 20th century, all this stuff. Uh, excuse me, 19th century. Uh, Crowley, um, his cult was centered around the idea that you could tra- channel your will. Uh, and your intention through different actions. And of course, because he did have a sex cult, the sexual channeling uh, is one of the key ways in his mind to attain power, to do workings. Uh, So I definitely think there's a component to that in this film. Uh, I've heard, uh, never was able to substantiate it, but it seems plausible. I've heard that in the the cult sequence where you have the Nick guy playing the the piano or whatever, that they wanted to have reverse chanting by Crowley but they had to they ended up using reversed Romanian Orthodox chant so it's it's a kind of a black mass in a way and Crowley's ritual is a sort of a version of that it's different from the Church of Satan black mass type stuff Uh, but I think that it's using the the sex magic symbolism there is elements of Masonic symbolism and maybe Kabbalism as well because uh, I think there's Kabbalistic imagery in um, uh, 2001 so in one of your videos you said that a character was quoting a text called Bedding Married Women, something like that. Yeah, one of the ancient Roman, uh, Roman writers, I think it's Ovid, yeah. And did um, Kubrick use the classics throughout the movie, or was that just one reference? Off the top of my head, that's the only one I can think of. Uh, you're talking about the, uh, when Sandor Sabost, when he comes up, he's this uh, Hungarian uh, older gentleman who's he's the one that's trying to seduce uh, nicole kidman um and he quotes i think it's ovid on how to to get people to cheat um and he's he's almost successful uh and then i think what we have is a couple weird situations in the film where it's almost like nicole kidman at time hints to tom cruise that she is already in part of this she's already been to these meetings that's the part where I think you can debate the film, but one of the, the strongest arguments for that is that there's a scene where she's teaching the daughter mathematics uh, at the table. He walks in after he's been wandering about and he's tempted by the prostitute Domino and he doesn't end up doing anything when he comes back home and he walks in and she's like, so-and-so has uh, $1. <laughs> Another boy has many more dollars and she's like, the one with many more dollars has a lot more than the other one. And she looks up at him and it's almost like she's giving Tom Cruise the impression that she knows what he's been up to. And she knows that there are people who have way more money than you, more money than you could even imagine. Uh, and you're not at the top of the totem pole, right? Her dream, her wild dream where it sounds like she was at this club or had been to clubs like this seem to also suggest that she's already perhaps raised in this or a part of this. So my take is just that I wonder if the whole thing wasn't kind of organized so that Tom Cruise would be led down this yellow brick road. I mean, the whole Oz theme is there as well. Alice in Wonderland, uh, Tom Cruise is the Oz character. I mean, the Alice character. So out of um, all of the films Kubrick made, how different was this one? And why do you think he did this one? It's the last one, so it kind of caps off uh, his uh, very illustrious career. Um, there are a lot of debates as to whether he was killed over this or whether he had to was forced to cut out 30 minutes of the different releases in Europe or something like that. I, I, I don't know a whole lot about whether that's confirmed. I mean, I do know what I tried to do is go with what I could verify and what I could verify was that he did have a lot of high-level connections, and he would make deals such as, well, NASA would work with Kubrick if he and he could use the Zeiss this million-dollar lens, the Zeiss lens for Barry Lyndon, uh, if he would, you know, help uh, consult on the moon stuff and on the how stuff is filmed and this kind of stuff. That's that's my take on it. 
So he did have to work with NASA, uh, Arthur C. Clarke, uh, Muhlenberg, I think was the guy who was the head of, the Na- of NASA at the time. So he was maybe in a way trapped uh, as an artist. Uh, it's kind of the way I view it, where maybe there's conflicting desires, where he wants the aid and help of the establishment because that helps him to make these, you know, Berlin and this kind of stuff. But at the same time, he recognizes how degenerate and crazy this is. So he also wants to produce real art. So my take is that there's kind of both of those things going on. So from your research then, who was Kubrick? An artist who tried to walk both worlds. He wanted to do what artists want to do, which is make their own stuff. And they want to tell their own message. Uh, But at the same time, he was a a man of the system to some degree, because he had to be to work, you know, to get to where he was. Um, So he's a little bit of both. Uh, He's a little bit of a person who is compromised and tortured for it. And at the same time, still wants to be an artist. That's my view. I'm not saying that I know if he was sexually compromised. I'm not saying that I'm saying just in terms of what I can verify with him having to work with the system so much. So you mentioned the speculation about his death. What are the theories and what does your gut tell you? I really don't have any set view on that. I I don't know. I would not be surprised. I mean, anybody, as you've said, you know, that runs in those kind of circles, those, those upper elite circles, who's involved in this all kind of crazy stuff, there's going to be people who die around them. (laughs) So uh, we know that people there, you know, people do uh, get knocked off. So it's entirely possible um, I just don't know the specifics of the case of Kubrick. Uh, it's 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 entirely plausible, yeah, that, that they didn't like the presentation of Eyes Wide Shut. It did deal with something too sensitive. I mean, again, back at that time, there was only one book that I can think of that even dealt with sex cults on a power level. You know, one book. That's all I, I know of. There could have been some unknown book somewhere. But so nobody had ever seen anything like this. Um, the book, I mean, the movie didn't really do anything in terms of like changing public opinion. It wasn't a huge box office success. A lot of people just kind of thought it was too weird and dark. So I don't know that it, it, it threatened anybody or got anybody exposed because you'd have to be really adept at figuring stuff out or, uh, reading a lot of this information to even have known that it could be viewed as an expose. But then again, maybe he thought that down the road, you know, all this stuff could come out. So I don't know. What was the one book that you knew of that was that had stuff? The older book on the Franklin cover-up, uh, the Franklin scandal. So there's one by Nick Bryant, and then there's the other one that's the older book. Um, uh, Representative Charles Key was involved in that. So I'm sure you're familiar with like the older, uh, the uh, the conspiracy of silence, the old documentary. That no, uh, I've not seen that. I have uh, recently interviewed Nick Bryant, but I'm not. I've not seen that documentary. Uh, so the, this is the Discovery Channel documentary about all the Franklin stuff, uh, and it, it was supposed to air back in the 90s, and it never did because it was too, <laughs> it showed too much. Uh, so ever since the early 2000s, there's been a copy of it kind of floating all around the internet for many, many years. And so I'm just saying that that, that I can think of, that's the only book that I know of. Uh, there was one book in the 90s that covered... Um, the sexual problems in the Roman Catholic church and the, the compromise uh, Malachi Martin's book keys of this blood was written in the nineties and it mentions it. Uh, but I, that's the only two that I can think of because I've read extensively on that. So for people watching this, the Franklin scandal, there's a lot of parallels with Epstein's organization and I'll put the link in the description box to the recent interview with Nick Bryant. If you want to watch that fascinating account. So I recently interviewed somebody about, occult symbolism in Hollywood and pop culture. What are your thoughts on that subject? You're talking about Isaac? Yes. Yeah, Isaac's a good buddy of mine. I've known Isaac for a long time. Yeah. Uh, we have a lot of similar views. I would agree with probably much of his take. Uh, I think that it's everywhere in pop culture for multiple reasons, multiple layers. Really, it's a way to uh, do psychological warfare style prepping of people. So I talk a lot about what I call predictive programming or what other people call that. And that's just a way to kind of 
soften people up to things that you might want to introduce down the road. Uh, so a lot, of, a lot of blockbusters will do this kind of stuff where we'll see these big, say, a science fiction blockbuster where we see something that happens to the character in the film, and it might even be something innocuous, but later in the real world, we see this coming about 15, 20 years later. You know, think about movies like Minority Report, pretty common in uh, Spielberg movies or something written by Philip K. Dick, Blade Runner, this kind of stuff. You start seeing that stuff rolled out 15, 20 years later. So the question becomes, how intentional was that or was it just accidental? Well, there's so many examples that it's not accidental in every single case. There could be many cases where it is, but what I did when I was doing my grad work on this topic was I went to look at the different ways in which intelligence agencies have connections to Hollywood. Um, which there are many, it's long and it's a huge story on its own, just that, uh, but not just intelligence agencies, also corporations, all of these entities are very interested in what's projected in film. And they've known ever since the invention of the camera that, you know, that, that film could be a, a powerful way to propagandize or to sell stuff, right? The Bond films were very pioneering in the sense of being successful at uh, product placement. Well, you can do that with things but with not with not just products, but with ideas, you can you can seed ideas through films as well. So um, there's a long history of this. There's a long history in psychological warfare of using films in this way. Of even even Hitchcock films were uh, and and institutes different people were looking at how the audience was affected by uh, like slasher films, right? So when Psycho comes out, people, there there were studies that were done of how the audience reacted to these different sequences. And that's all been perfected at a scientific level now. So on one level, movies do that. They prepare us, they sell things, they sell ideas. Um, and I do think that there's another level at times, depending on the director who's involved in it, where they believe that there's a kind of a ritual working uh, involved in this, where they are kind of putting in something beyond just the human level, they're also putting their energy, their will, and their intention into the production to have an effect in the mass psyche. Uh, and so there, if you think of directors, I'm trying to think of who might do that. Um, somebody like David Lynch might do that. Somebody like Darren Aronofsky. Uh, they're very into this esoteric type of stuff or the shamanic tradition. And they would see themselves as like magicians or shamans as directors. So uh, just depending on the on the case, there could be all of these things going on. And so symbolism would be one of the key ways that they would be interested in channeling and focusing that energy in the, the artistic production. So I realize you've got to be careful what you put in your subconscious. So what does exposing generations of people to slasher movies achieve? So there's a couple of people who've commented on this. Uh, one... Um, commentator called it the theater of brutality uh, and th his thesis was that if you brutalize the public uh, through more and more degraded forms of art it's a kind of what they call aesthetic terrorism so you can actually produce um, uh, a, a, almost a sort of catatonic state if people go through it enough where they're completely desensitized so a lot of people used to think you know oh if people uh, play video games so they watch violent movies they're going to be violent I mean, there might be something to that, but ironically, what seems to happen is that it more so produces this catatonic state where people are more and more apathetic and they're just more like vegetables and they're more like they're more receptive uh, rather than, you know, mimicking it and going out and being violent or something like this. Uh, so I think that the proliferation of that brutalized stuff, um, if you've speaking of Kubrick, I mean, think of think of Clockwork Orange. Uh, remember the sequence where Alex is brought to the Institute uh, and what do they do? They strap him down and they make him watch just this horrendous stuff, right? Over and over and over. And he's forced to watch it. Well, we do that. We're all Alex is sitting here watching sometimes the most horrendous. I don't particularly like the really uh, uh, body torture types movies like that, but some people do. And what it does is that it produces in a lot of people this kind of catatonic state. That's what happens to Alex. He just becomes this, this vegetable, and then he's repurposed and reprogrammed. Kubrick was telling us about the Tavistock Institute and these different groups and MKUltra in that film. I mean, I know it's an older novel from Burgess, but Kubrick was trying to portray that. Yeah, I remember in the Clockwork Orange, they're reprogramming him, and they bring in the beautiful woman. He starts to feel sick, doesn't he? He's keeping sort of sex and violence. Like, oh. Yeah. <laughs> Every time he would reach out to cop a feel, he starts crying. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> so, 
So you mentioned the intelligence agencies, their role in Hollywood manipulating. Is that primarily driven by war propaganda or do they have other priorities? The origins of that relationship, absolutely. So if we go back to the 20s, uh, characters like um, um, Howard, uh, Howard Hughes was making these big blockbusters of the 20s, uh, uh, Hell's Angels, this kind of stuff. And that was overtly war propaganda. Uh, no question about it. I think everybody's aware of that. Um, even the Soviets, they had characters who who did the same stuff with movies and films. They would make uh, war propaganda. So the, the birth of the camera it comes with propaganda and war. But as we get up into the 40s, 50s, and 60s, when you have the creation of the OSS and then the CIA, we start to actually see um, high-level actors recruited. So quite a few famous actors and actresses have been spies uh, that later came out people didn't know at the time but so there's also that layer of it where <clears throat> uh you know jimmy stewart is actually was an informant for the fbi um there's rumors of other famous people as well uh you even have people like julia child where she she's she used to be in the oss and then she transitions into these goofy uh, cooking shows right so there's a there's a long history of that and it's a lot more uh, prevalent than people think and by the way, it does. It didn't stop in the 40s. There's still uh, people who work with the CIA today. Uh, A-list people do. Uh, I've covered that uh, in the books as well. The first time I heard that, I thought, you know, it kind of blew me away. But then if you think about it, it's pretty obvious. I mean, if you are an A-list person, you have access to a lot of people across the world that other people don't have access to. You're going to be meeting dignitaries, all kinds of people. So you could see why there could be that kind of a, a role for that person from an intelligence agency perspective. I'm not saying every A-list actor is in the CIA, I'm not saying that, but we've had people like Ben Affleck, we've had people like Jennifer Garner actually be very public about it. You know, Jennifer Garner talked about doing PR work for the CIA for a long time, recruiting people at college campuses as a famous actress, right? Ben Affleck has done interviews where he says, look, Hollywood and the CIA, they're flip sides of the same coin, right? This, this is not even, it's not even a, a question. Um, but. So as this relationship progresses, eventually it's not just the war propaganda. It's, it's more and more uh, collusion from my perspective, uh, even then to the point where you eventually get uh, the liaison set up to where you have people who were a longtime CIA operatives who then go to become Hollywood uh, consultants. Uh, uh, they will consult on the films. And then you get eventually entire movies almost that are just like zero dark 30. I mean, that's, that's almost, I mean, almost entirely a CIA production movie. Um, so the relationship seems to have become closer, 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 and more and more public. Uh, and it's not just CIA. There's also FBI uh, films, films that come out that are almost totally uh, FBI productions. There's one that uh, is called The American Story or The FBI Story, and Jimmy Stewart is the star. He plays the American hero in every generation, uh, and he was a, an FBI informant. So there's a long history, and it's not just um, war propaganda. There's more going on. Even some speculate to the point of uh, perhaps some of these actors and actresses could have been used as um, uh, sleeper agents or MK Ultra uh, assassins or um, couriers. So if we think of the case of Candy Jones, she was part of the uh, Bob Hope USO tour. Uh, this really beautiful woman back in the 40s and 50s, uh, supermodel, and she apparently had multiple personalities. The claim is, if you read the Donald Bain book or if you read uh, uh, Walter Boward's book on Operation Mind Control, so there's a, a lot of different possibilities going on here. So when you see the symbolism, the Illuminati stuff used by the likes of Katy Perry and other huge stars, is that clever marketing or is it something more sinister? It's both, I think. Uh, depending on who we're talking about, I mean, I don't think that I don't think Katy Perry is at the top of the pyramid telling everybody what to do. Uh, she doesn't seem to be that much of a mastermind. Um, but it's entirely plausible, though, that she could have been um initiated at a certain level into different groups something like witchcraft uh, wicca or um there was a story i read in rolling stone where she had been initiated into some kind of secret society at harvard at one point that had to do with jesters the jester society or something like that i can't remember what the name of it was but um uh 
I would say in her case and with a lot of the Hollywood people in terms of that level of symbolism and cult, they, they're big Crowley fans. So I would say quite a few of the Hollywood people are probably into Crowleyanism in different forms and fashions, uh, different ways. There are, a lot of them are into Kabbalism, so they could be involved in Kabbalistic cults or groups. Uh, so that's probably more likely uh, than she's, you know, in the quote Illuminati per se, because w that's an ambiguous term. A lot of different groups have used the phrase Illuminati, but I think most of the time what, what people are thinking of in terms of pop culture is fans of Crowley or part of Crowley's cult, uh, Thelema, OTO, this kind of stuff. Um, but the real Illuminati in the real world is the corporate banking elite uh, who those people are oftentimes tied in where they overlap with. And then there's the historic group of the Illuminati who were the Enlightenment rationalists. So there's these different, you know, different groups, different uh, confusion uh, that arises over that phrase. Some people say that you can't get to the level of a Katy Perry without being in these secret societies. Now, I recently watched an interview with Robbie Williams and a friend of mine called Chris Thrall. And I know Robbie is from humble roots in a part of the UK called Stoke. And he vehemently said that, you know, he'd never been approached about any secret societies in his entire career. And he had some of the biggest uh, contracts in the industry in the history of the world. So what's your perspective? Can you can some people get that far without the secret societies? Do you think that they're, they're all clicked up somehow or other? It is possible because a lot of people um, don't have a necessarily a secret society track or component. Um, Take about somebody like Bill Gates. I mean, to my knowledge, Bill Gates or David Rockefeller, uh, I don't know of any secret societies that they were a part of. They could have been part of some that I don't know about, but um, they came from previously powerful families. Uh, they rose through the ranks in terms of their professions to then be the chairs of these big giant corporations, these big banks, these um, essentially deep state entities is what they, they're, they're parts of. So in some cases where the families are prominent, uh, the person doesn't necessarily have to be part of a secret society. Secret society is just kind of one way that people find the, the ability to try to rise up to the ranks, right? I mean, a lot of, in, uh, maybe not so much today, but 100, 200 years ago, most prominent men were Freemasons in America and a lot of places in the West. So Freemasonry was seen as a way to not just, you know, make good men better, but to have networks and connections and to rise up in the ranks. But not everybody has to be a part of a secret society. Uh, is it possible that some people from down below uh, like that, uh, in terms of the, the pyramid, do they rise up? I think it's it's possible to some degree, you know, if you're super talented, if you can really do something really well that people are forced to recognize and, and you, you know, it is plausible. So I wouldn't be a, an extremist and say that every single person who has ever had any success is part of the Illuminati or a secret society. I think that would be a little unrealistic. What is your interpretation of the recent Joker movie? That's a good one. Um, I did a 10 minute video analyzing that. Um, it seemed to me to be a critique of society as a whole. Uh, so both the elite and the lower classes, but it seemed to be maybe wanting to spark more of a revolution. Uh, so uh, I will give it credit that it wasn't like this fake sort of social justice type of revolution. It was a little more self-aware than just parroting everything social justice, which is why a lot of the social justice type elite of Hollywood and the liberal elite, they didn't like it for that reason. So I'll give it credit for that. But it seemed to be a presentation of um, nihilism. The Joker kind of represents modern man, in my view. We're all kind of uh, jokers. We're all kind of ridiculous because society is, is structured in a pretty ridiculous way, if you think about it. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> yeah, right. So one of the chapters in your book is the occult empire. What do you mean by that? There, what I wanted to highlight was the, by the empire there, I meant Hollywood. Um, what I wanted to highlight was what I think David Lynch is talking about by what he calls the Inland Empire. I think uh, Lynch in three of his key films is critiquing Hollywood in a certain way. Um, Lost Highway, Mulholland Drive, and Inland Empire uh, 
seem to be his Hollywood focused movies. And they, each of them presents a different type of critique, a different layer of critique about Hollywood. Um, so I think that the occult empire is my analysis of how it's kind of like a secret society or a mafia in the sense that um, there's a great book that I, I cited in part two when I got into the mob stuff. Um, there's, it's called Super Mob by Gus Russo. Uh, he has a great section on uh, how Al Pacino got to be the godfather, and he had to go to different mob groups to get permission to play <laughs> that character. <laughs> so uh, it was very, uh, there was actually some arguments over this uh, at different uh, uh, casinos, as I understand it, about whether this would happen, according to Gus Russo's book. So I thought, when I read that in, in Gus Russo's book, I said, that's exactly what David Lynch is putting in certain movies where if you think about Mulholland Drive, the whole plot of that movie is who's going to get this role. And they have to call up to the top of this building and it's this guy behind this glass screen, this little weird guy in the background. He's like, the girl gets the role, <laughs> right? So, I mean, it's kind of satirical. He's being, he's being funny. But um, I wanted to highlight that, how there is this close connection between a kind of uh, secret societies, mafias, intelligence agencies, and how Hollywood and these different cults uh, have an, an occult perspective. So that's what I was trying to do there. If you remember, there's a, there was a famous book called Hollywood Babylon by Kenneth Anger, who was a avant-garde, weird, uh, Crowleyan filmmaker in Hollywood who influenced a lot of people. And he wanted to look at Hollywood from that perspective. So I kind of tried to model my book loosely on that, kind of like a loose sequel to that. So you've written a lot about sci-fi, E.T., um, Close Encounters, Logan's Run. What are the highlights from your analysis of sci-fi? Well, I, I, I do kind of like sci-fi, so I don't want to be too overly critical, but I also recognize the power of science fiction to be propaganda as well, which I think a lot, a lot of us don't think about science fiction that way. We think, uh, what's propaganda? Oh, that's like war movies that, you know, like you said, that try to get us that we, to, to buy into war. But science fiction can be propaganda as well. For example, Darwinism or um, transhumanism, those are two key ideas. They're connected and they have been promoted primarily not through education, but through fiction. Most of us, when we think about why we believe, you know, whatever about the future or space travel, we don't think about it because we went and read papers at NASA or, you know, websites by the government. Or we think about it because of the movies that we saw. Oh, I watched Star Trek. I grew up watching Star Trek, Star Wars, right? So we think about all the space adventures. And that's what I tried to hone in on was that, that science fiction is one of the key ways that people could be influenced. And I don't want to say that everybody who writes science fiction is necessarily bad. I mean, if you read Philip K. Dick, I mean, there's so many movies made from Philip K. Dick stories. But... There's so much predictive power in Philip K. Dick's stories because he was hanging around the Silicon Valley elite. Like he was in those circles. He knew what they were going to do, what they were trying to plan. So when you're reading Philip K. Dick, you're reading like these predictions of the future. So there's a positive component to stuff, warnings about the dystopia that could come. Uh, but there's also a lot of propaganda that can be put in there as well. So that's the main thing that I wanted to focus on about Hollywood and science fiction and also the promotion of alien stuff. My view I believe the alien stuff is largely a psychological operation. Uh, and I tried to highlight how I think Hollywood was big in promoting that ridiculous narrative. Uh, if you, there's some good, um, uh, there's a good documentary called Mirage Men that kind of highlights that perspective that I have that, that a lot of the people who are these whistleblowers and who supposedly have all these alien counters, oh, they just happen to also be working for counterintelligence and they also are very good at disinformation. So my take on the alien stuff is, is that, is that it's been promoted mainly through Hollywood, not through anything else. So I've read Brave New World, I've read 1984. How on earth were Huxley and Orwell so accurate in their predictions? In the case of Huxley, uh, I do not believe he was a honest uh, truth teller trying to get the word out to the masses. I mean, he and his brother were part of uh, the elite societies of uh, the UK. They were in the Royal Society cliques. Um, they had that radical view of creating a new world, reducing population. 
and just like Bertrand Russell, sometimes these people will pretend that they're the liberal do-gooders uh, and then turn around and you they sort of snicker to themselves and like, oh, yeah, well, of course I want everyone to die. you know. But Russell was famous for this kind of stuff, like pretending to be the liberal. So in the in the UK elite circles, you have these this kind of the the sort of the right wing perspective that's kind of fake, um, the Astors, these kinds of people that were part of the Cliveden set, and then you have this liberal quote unquote perspective. Oh, we're the do gooder humanitarians, uh, the Fabian socialists, right? So you've got like the H. G. Wells and these kind of characters over here, and Russell, these characters, uh, but they're not really liberal because their perspective is they are, are they're adamant that everybody needs to die and we need to have a global government, we need to have a total technocracy. They say it through all their writings. All right, so I've covered all these books. Um, and then you get the the people like Eric Blair, Orwell, who it's a little bit unclear in my view of whether to what degree he was uh, trying to get the word out and expose things. I mean, the, the only... I mean, I've heard all the stories that he had to flee to Scotland because he thought British intelligence was going to end up killing him or stuff like this, but... That's possible, but my, my take is that it also could be psychological warfare because if you read 1984, it leaves you with no hope. I mean, it's almost like the point of the book was to dash your hopes. Uh, you can't fight this, right? So I've always entertained the possibility that that could be uh, an attempt to demoralize the audience. I mean, that's kind of basic psychological warfare because uh, it leaves you with a demoralization. But then again, maybe it wasn't malicious. Maybe he just felt demoralized. I don't know. But he saw the the, the fake aspects of liberal and conservative, of socialist and, and capitalist. He saw that dialectic and over his lifetime, and that allowed him, I think, to see through a lot of stuff. But um, yeah, I think I, I think it's... They're both prophetic in different ways, but I think the future that we're going into looks more like Brave New World. Have you read Orwell's Road to Catalonia? I have not. Okay, that's um, where he's fighting in the Spanish Civil War. But I, I won't ask you about that then. I'll ask you about something you've written. You've written the phrase magical mind control trigger words. What did you mean by that? Um, I think I was talking, that might be the chapter on... Uh, um, AI. Uh, so what I was talking about there was the possibility that. Okay, so in the film, the the Haley Joel Osment character is like a he's a, a Pinocchio type of character, right? So the film constantly references Pinocchio because he wants to be a real boy, and so there's this sequence where the mom activates his. Uh, his emotional components by repeating these phrases and it's almost like another persona emerges right or a fuller persona emerges and i was just noting how that was curious when we compare that to the some of the studies that the mk ultra uh, projects did in terms of splitting personalities uh, programming certain personalities using the trigger words um, i know that sounds a little out there but if you read the book by dr john c Lilly, who was one of the mk ultra doctors uh, he wrote this crazy book called programming and metaprogramming in the human biocomputer and in that text he talks about quite literally how he wiped the minds of children i mean these mad scientist people are i mean they have no morals at all <laughs> they'll do anything they're the worst people actually the mad scientists are the worst people on the planet um and he would give kids doses of lsd he just talks about it nonchalantly in the, in the book and then he would try to wipe their minds and then take the different compartmentalized uh, aspects of the fragmented psyche and see if he could pr program these different compo components in different ways. And he goes into all cra crazy stuff, like he would uh, give people high doses of LSD and then like set mirrors in front of them and then you know play movies, play tapes, and, and do this sort of deep, deep patterning and deprogramming stuff, just like Dr. Ewan Cameron did. The reason I mentioned Lily is because he, he specifically mentions the children that he, that he did this to. So we know that that's very real, uh, and that's probably what I was referring to in that phrase, is that um, from the vantage point of some of the psychonauts, Terrence McKenna, Tim Leary, uh, Kesey, um, and, 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 and him, uh, Lily, uh, they, they didn't just have this bare scientism view. Uh, Leary was the devotee of Crowley. So a lot of those guys 
took this stuff very serious to the ritual magic level uh and they saw it in a in a metaphysical way a spiritual way uh, uh there's a there's an interview where with lily where he's <laughs> he's like he's wearing like a, a a davy crockett cap and like a i don't know what some kind of weird yellow shirt and then he's just sitting there and he's like it's in the 70s and they're interviewing him and they're like so tell us about your work and you mentioned something about doing the highest dose of lsd ever. he's like yeah, i went out beyond into the realm of only light and i was bathed in the pure light it's like you talk about lucifer like i was bathed in the pure light of lucifer and i came back and he told me when i came back that i was not allowed to talk about anything that i had seen in that in that trip <laughs> so, so th these are not just scientists i mean these are people who are more than just scientists they're also involved in really crazy stuff that's what i was referring to do you have a perspective on the experiments that were done at harvard on the unibomber when he attended the I just was rereading about that. Um, I don't know what to make of him. I, I, I mean, I've seen some of the documentaries. Uh, the one that I really liked was the older documentary, uh, The Internet, The Unabomber, and MKUltra, I think is the name of it. It's a, like a 2003 documentary. Um, but that's really good because it ties it into like the Esalen Institute and how a lot of the high-level people at the Esalen Institute were kind of promoting and prompting a lot of the new age counterculture stuff in the 60s and 70s so that was a lot more of an engineered thing than people think it wasn't just this organic like counterculture thing if you've are you familiar with dave mcgowan's book have you have you seen no it? uh weird scenes inside the canyon you, you you'd love that that's a great book um dave passed away a couple years ago but his book's really good um anyway i uh I don't know what to make of the Unabomber. I mean, it's possible that he was mind controlled. Or it's possible that he saw where this was going and really wanted to warn people and just lost it. Or it's possible that they framed him. I don't really have an opinion. Do you have an opinion on Saran Saran? I think it's plausible that he was one of the people that they attempted to do this with. Um, I have some doubts just because if you want to assassinate someone, um, it's really easy to, from the vantage point of the establishment, to find a hitman who would do it. <laughs> so you don't need these uh, hypnotic mind-controlled couriers to do it. So on the practical level, uh, it doesn't seem like the wisest way to go about assassinating somebody. But at the same time, when we look at the actual case of Sirhan Sirhan, there are some odd things that pop up about him being involved in these these secret societies, Rosicrucianism, if I recall. He does appear to have uh, dissociation problems. So I, I don't have a set view on that. I could see it going either way. It's just that the, uh, I wouldn't jump to the conspiracy uh, assumption uh, when, you know, it's pretty easy probably to hire a hitman. I mean, could, couldn't you just kill, hire somebody to kill the guy? You don't need to program some guy who might lose it. I mean, why are you going to use a lunatic to, to do this operation, right? Why don't you just, just hire some hitman? Could you explain to people what Rosicrucianism is? Rosicrucianism is one of the Enlightenment uh, secret societies that focus a lot on alchemy. It comes out of the... Uh, German and Lutheran circles. A lot of the early Rosicrucians were Lutherans. Um, we don't know exactly who wrote their founding treatise. Uh, people speculate if it was a second generation Lutheran after Martin Luther, but they appropriated a lot of the Lutheran symbolism, the Luther rose, this kind of stuff. Um, and then they, it was popular amongst some of the, the German elite, the German princes after Luther's Reformation. Uh, and then it had a bit of a life where it transferred some of their sect over to the U.S. There's actually, a, I think, a Rosicrucian monastery. There's one of those in the U.S. over in the eastern seaboard somewhere that's been there for a long time. Um, it's not a huge group, but they do have, I guess, some thinkers and influencers. They look to people like uh, Sir Francis Bacon uh, as an influence or uh, Shakespeare because there, do, there seem to be similar themes in Bacon and Shakespeare that deal with Rosicrucian ideas, which is just like I said, the idea of the great work, alchemy, that, that everything that's happening is ultimately part of a giant occult plan. It's not like a, a god in the sense of, of how we think of it, but maybe more like Platonism or influences from Neoplatonic philosophy. Do you think that Charles Manson was a product of government experiments? 
Uh, I tend to think that yes, when he went, when he was in prison, he got really deep into, in one of his stints, he got deep into, if I recall, uh, Scientology and he, he achieved the theta clear level, <laughs> which I don't think a lot of people know that he, he get really got really into that for a long time. Um, I don't know to what degree, like when he was out there doing his partying, he was necessarily being handled. He could have been a handler. I don't know, but I just think the whole thing smacks of uh, someone who seems to have been used for that purpose. So I, I tend to think that he probably did have a higher level handler. Other people have written books speculating on that. Um, there's the Maury Terry uh, book about the 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 higher level secret uh, assassin group that might have been behind some of these serial killers and that they might have stacked some of these murders. Uh, um, uh, I think uh, – Dan McGowan calls it haystacking. He's got a good book called Program to Kill where he covers his theory on this, where he thinks that sometimes the local police and the, the jurisdictions are, are are corrupt. And so what they'll do is they'll stack a whole bunch of unsolved murders on one guy. And so that's how you get these like outrageous numbers. Oh, you killed 200, 200 people, really? Well, there's some maybe some un, unsolved crimes thrown in there that the police department can write off, right? Um, or uh, at times you could have, say, uh, a killer who kills a whole bunch of people, but in the midst of that, there was only really one person that they were interested in, but they wanted to make it look like uh, it was just random murders, but, oh, it just happened to get the guy who was actually the target. So there's those different scenarios going on with uh, different theories about serial killers. I think that that's plausible um, from Dave, the Dave McGowan perspective. And I think that you could fit Manson into one of these kinds of people who it's very possible. Yeah. Wasn't it John Wayne Gacy they used to say that he had basically killed every cold case in the country. And <laughs> when, they did a, when they did a map, like, one murder was over here. Like, murders at the same time, and he couldn't possibly have traveled He can bilocate. He's got, like, bilocation powers. <laughs> How prevalent are the CIA in drug experiments on the population and drug trafficking? Um, there have been many books written about the drug trafficking. There's the McCloy book, uh, The Politics of Heroin. Um, that's a classic on that. Um by the way, I, I meant to mention, I forgot to mention too, the idea of the creation of the serial killer, that's not that far-fetched either. Actually, the Phoenix program, if you read Douglas Valentine's book, the Phoenix program was a Vietnam-era uh, program where they wanted to basically create mo just crazed killers who would terrorize Viet Cong. Uh, it's a real program. Um, it was signed off by the CIA. And if you watch movies like Apocalypse Now, you kind of get the impression that maybe that's what that's talking about because Colonel Kurtz goes crazy in the same way that the Phoenix program seems to uh, portray the training for these kind of uh, mega killer people. Um, but so Dave harkens back to uh, the Phoenix program book as well. But I would say that when it comes to the drug trafficking, it's pretty well known. I don't think there's much question that the CIA has had a long history of that. The OSS uh, basically took over the, a lot of the hubs and the networks uh, that French intelligence used to run. So the OSS took that over, which is the predecessor of the CIA. Um, so it's pretty well known. I mean, there's different places like the Golden Circle and these different places where uh, trade meets that are, are classic hubs for this stuff. And because the drug trade functions as more than just drugs, it's also a good way to have liquid cash and to transfer money. So the drug trade is part of the whole black market trade, which is connected to mobs and to intelligence agencies. And there's always been a close, close relationship between, especially in America, the mafia and intelligence agencies. In fact, during World War II, the CIA recruited a lot of Sicilian mafia to work with them. Uh, There's long history to this, but... Uh, the drug trade in the CIA is uh, BFF, just like CIA in Hollywood is BFF. Um, now, the experiments on people, we know about MKUltra, uh, and there's different situations, Midnight Climax, these kinds of things where they would do this stuff uh, on unwitting people. There was uh, uh, experiments where they would spray whole towns with different uh, chemicals to test to see what they would do. So there's a lot of different variations and examples of this, but... Most of the MKUltra doctors that we know of, uh, that's only part of the story. There was seven boxes of information related to MKUltra that were destroyed out of, the, out of the 14. 
So a lot of it we don't know about, but dozens of universities were involved. Um, probably uh, other private facilities were involved. Um, and there was a lot of experimentation. But my perspective on it is that a lot of that experiments that were done, say, on like individuals, all they did was learn how these things affect individuals to then strategize ways to do it at a macro scale. So it's not so much about can we create a mind control courier or assassin? They don't really need that per se. It could exist, but what's more valuable that or the ability to manipulate an entire continent, you see, through mass media? That's way more valuable than creating, you know, Scarlett Johansson as some kind of mind control assassin. So I remember as a kid, I watched the movie The Devil Rides Out. So I was interested in one, in one of your chapters. It's uh, The Occult, MI6, Dennis Wheatley. Could you expand on that, please? Right. So um, the way I got into that was my master, uh, when I was doing my master's, I wanted to focus on uh, a, one of the easiest ways to show the relationship between intelligence and Hollywood. And I discovered that no better example exists than Ian Fleming because Ian Fleming was high-level British psyops. He worked in naval intelligence. Um, he was a fascinating character, actually. A lot of the Bond stories are exaggerations of things that he knew about or might have even been involved in, to a degree. Okay, it's exaggerated, obviously, right? So I'm not trying to <laughs> overplay this, but there's a lot of truth in the Bond stories, ironically. Um, now, a lot of what goes on is projection. So a lot of times what they're doing is they're taking what, Spectre or British intelligence or uh, Western intelligence is doing and they're foisting it onto the enemy, right? So if we just think about it in terms of uh, James Bond actually works for Spectre, if we think about it in that perspective, <laughs> the whole story starts to make more sense. So um, looking at Ian Fleming, I started to realize that he was putting true operations into the stories, into the films, I mean, into the, the books, which eventually became films. Um, and so there's no better example than that, of that than James. I forgot what your question was. I got lost. What was the question? I'm sorry. <laughs> My question was about the occult. You got the occult in MI6 as well oh, as the chapters. That's now I remember. So Dennis Wheatley, uh, yeah. So Wheatley was, I don't think that, he, uh, so a great example of this is Crowley. So Crowley was for a time an MI5 asset. Uh, during wartime stuff, and he was doing goofy propaganda level stuff, and they wanted to use him to kind of influence uh, um, Rudolf Hess because these some of these characters were were involved in the, the occult and this kind of stuff. So uh, Wheatley and Dennis Knight, uh, no Dennis Wheatley and, and Knight, uh, they knew Crowley. They had met him, and they talked about how weird he was and how useful he was, and so. When Wheatley wrote some of those stories, he chose Mokata to be based on Crowley. And ironically, Fleming, when he did uh, Le Schiff, and I think a, a little bit of Blofeld, uh, is also based on Crowley. So so they saw him as this hilarious sort of supervillain character that they could put you know, in, into the stories. And so Devil Rides Out is this is a is a is Wheatley presenting a version of something like that where it's not about spies, but it's about the occult and similar it's maybe similar to Eyes Wide Shut, but with a supernatural component because you have the elite sort of mind controlling this girl to bring her into this cult to baptize her into Lucifer and this kind of stuff. And uh, again, I think that the that in amongst the British elite, at, la, at least, uh, I think Satanism has been pretty popular for a long time. I think many of them take it fairly seriously. Uh, various forms of Satanism, Crowleyanism, um, and and you can see that with the relationship between Crowley and these people, uh, you know, a long time ago. So I was pleased to see that you wrote about Mulholland Drive, which is a movie that blew my mind when I first watched it. You're claiming that that movie contains occult brainwashing. Could you expand on that? Uh, yeah, I think that <laughs> um, I'll start doing my David Lynch impersonation. So I, I think that uh, it's the second one of the trilogy on critiquing Hollywood. So I think what Lynch is doing in Mulholland Drive is saying that you have with the Naomi Watts character, this just innocent Midwest girl who thinks that she's going to make it in Hollywood because she won some goofy dance contest, right? So she's got these idealistic dreams um, about being a famous actress, but at the same time, she has to uh, 
uh, constantly sort of compromise to get what she wants. And the message seems to be that the real there, there's two stories going on. There's one that's sort of this dream version of who she is and what she's experiencing. And then there's the reality where she's a crack whore. <laughs> the reality is that the real uh, actress character did not make it. She fails. Uh, she didn't get the role that she thought she was going to get. And so she actually hires a hitman to kill the actress uh, because she's turned into basically being a crack whore. Um, but at the same time, she's dissociating. She has dissociative states. And sometimes I think we see the movie from the perspective of her dissociative state. So although we don't know what's real and what's fake in the movie, uh, on another level, I think David Lynch is criticizing this principle in Hollywood that people think they're coming out there to be successful. But just like the the uh, the girl, the character in Lost Highway, she we find out that she was actually a porn actress, right? She was into something else. Uh, uh, there was a secret about her that that's the real her. Uh, and then she has this other persona that she presents to the, to the, to the boyfriend. Um, so in the same way here, there's, there's two different Naomi Wattses and ultimately she ends up dissociative. And so that's the meaning of that box and the key. And she's got this other woman in her head that's not real, right? Uh, it's a, it's like they're alters in my view. And so it's not until she goes to club silencio that we find out that this was all sort of going through her head at the moment of her death, just like the bill uh, Pullman character in lost highway. The beginning of the film is like him either dying or dissociating. And so the, what we saw in the film was sort of his whole life being played before him. So what is the black Dahlia? This was uh, one of the interesting uh, cases of um, ritual murder in Hollywood that seemed to involve some pretty high-level uh, players. Now, it's still theorized who was behind this, um, but if you have the uh, or if you're, if you're familiar with the um, uh, George Hodel case, his son has written a book that he thinks his dad was the the minds behind this, brains behind this operation. And he talks about what he was into, his dad was into. So apparently his dad was into all of the craziest, grossest stuff that you could think of. Uh, and one of the key connects there is the surrealist artist Man Ray. Uh, and so Man Ray has all this really weird surrealist art, stuff that goes beyond what you see on Google. Like if you look up Man Ray, you'll see all this weird stuff, but there's some pretty avant-garde, next-level uh bondage type stuff that he was into and so if you have a if you i have a book that came out that, that i got a hold of that i think is a good one to to show this it's called exquisite corpse and it's about man ray's uh portrayal of noir style uh corpses and bodies and this kind of stuff and in that book he talks about or he his artwork shows a lot of stuff that's suggestive of the way the corpses were the, the elizabeth's uh smart elizabeth short uh Corpse was laid out, I'm trying to say. Uh, so that's one of the key indicators that people think that um, Man Ray could have been involved or in the circle. Because he was in the circles of Hodel. And they were also in the circles of the famous director, John Huston, I think, who also was OSS, by the way. Um, I think that's right. Anyway, I, I might be wrong on some of those, those facts. The details a long time ago when I read this. But uh, long story short is that, yeah, it's, just, it's a famous case that, that's obviously – ritual murder the way that the body was cut up and laid out um, and nobody exactly knows who was behind it but it looks like people in high level uh, elite circles have you come across any theories about the masonic ritual murders of jack the ripper's victims uh not beyond the way it's popularized by alan moore um i've not read any actual book on that i think there's I, did, I read one chapter on that i think in maybe sinister forces touches on it in one chapter i can't recall but um i think it's plausible i, I mean a lot of uh people in the british establishment are pretty typically freemasons i mean a lot of the police a lot of the bureaucrats a lot of the mps a lot of the nobility uh, uh so it seems very plausible that if somebody was a high level assassin, a doctor or something like that, that uh, they would have also been a Freemason who perhaps took their ritual magic seriously. But as to whether that's uh, confirmed, I don't know. Have you looked at the bizarre art collection of Jeffrey Epstein? Um, 
Yes. So like he had the uh, he had the painting of what Bill Clinton wearing a blue dress. <laughs> I remember that. Yeah. Uh, is uh, refresh me. I don't remember what what else did he have. That's the one I remember. Well, some people say that there was a lot of symbolism. A lot of it was just underage. Um, you know okay. what? I won't say the word. I don't remember that. Yeah. But there was a lot of other bizarre um, things that they had in the property as well. But um, you know, we've gone into overtime here, and I, I really appreciate. You're spending this much time with us, Jay, and I'm going to urge people to go mm-hmm. down there and you know click on your channel and subscribe and check your stuff out. It's great to speak to someone who's so well researched and so well read. And thank I've you, really, man. I really enjoyed our chat today. Yeah, it was a wild talk. Hey, uh, maybe I could get you to come on and talk about some of your stories. Yeah, absolutely. Is okay. there anything you, do you think I've left out that you'd like to say to the people watching this in conclusion? Um. Not that I can think of. I mean, I, I cover things in the book. If you want to get um, signed copies, if you go to jaysanalysis.com, I, I sell the signed copies there. So preferably get them from me, not from Amazon. I have a shop there that you can you can uh, click on. Um, I do a subscription service where people can subscribe at my website if they want to get full access to the lectures and the talks that I've done on. For example, I did a, um, a whole lecture series on the writings of the elite for the last century. So we've done 40 plus books uh, of, of the elite themselves, just showing what they say, p- putting it all out there in their writings for the last hundred years. Uh, and so that's kind of one of the key things that I direct people to is that that um, that's that's an important thing to listen to. I would say the Tragedy and Hope series, I did a whole lecture on Carol Quigley's Tragedy and uh, Hope book, which is really a big fat book explaining the 20th century from the perspective of the Council on Foreign Relations and the elite. So all of that's there. And then uh, if, you, if anybody wants to watch my TV show, we did a full production season of a TV show based on my book. It's called Hollywood Decoded at uh, Gaia TV. And I imagine some people watching this are going to want to reach out to you and try and contact you. Are you available for your website, Twitter, Facebook? What's your preferred method? Probably the easiest way to contact is uh, messaging me on Twitter. Um, I get a lot of emails. You can send emails. It's just that I have to pay people to catch up on the emails. So, um, so yeah, either email or Twitter. But Twitter is probably a better uh, way to reach me. All right. Then. Or in, actually Instagram, too. I'm on, on Instagram, I have less messages coming through. And I'll put all those links in the description box awesome. as you can email those over. So thanks again for your time, Jay. Cheers.